Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who's trying to figure out what to do to improve their health through listening to the news, by which I do not mean listening to the news will actually improve your health. I'm Matt Fox. On the contrary. I I suspect (laughs) it will will harm your health. I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health, and I am here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hey there, Matt. And we, as always, are broadcasting... I guess we're not broadcasting, we're podcasting. No, we're recording. Or broadcasting. I don't know what we're doing. We're casting. We're casting our net wide. From the Boston University Godly Studio. So before we get started, we wanted to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And I also wanted to make a special plug. Uh, the uh, Population Health uh, Exchange is having its Summer Institute again this year. Uh, it's the week of June 11th and June 18th here at the Boston University School of Public Health, uh, where you can come and take uh, courses in things like systematic reviews and meta-analysis or SAS course. It's a, it's a good time and much learning is had. So go ahead to the Population Health EX website and you can find out more information and register. Can, uh, I ma- can I make a request? You can. Can we change the music that co- that uh, leads into this podcast? I like the music. Yeah, I know, but we've had it for, what, 12, 15 episodes? It's, it's, it's weird because like some shows will go on for years and years and years I'm with the same music. I think we should start off with reggae. I'm not even going to ask why. Not even going <laughs> to go there. Because I like reggae. I'm not taking the bait. Uh, a reminder, go ahead on uh, onto iTunes or however you get your podcasts and uh, give us a rating. That'll help other people find us. And now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to talk about a study that deals with the relationship between gluten in the diet and coronary heart disease. Uh, In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about what the role of prior evidence and beliefs should be when you critique an article. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that made us happy, or Don will give us an update on the Ig Nobel Awards. Right. Let's get into it. So, uh, segment one. So, we're going to talk about a review ar- uh, uh, article, excuse me, that looked at whether or not there is an association between a diet low in gluten and coron- risk for coronary heart disease. So, the article was published in the British Medical Journal, and it is entitled "Long Term Gluten Consumption in Adults Without Celiac Disease and Risk of Coronary Heart Disease: A Prospective Cohort Study," with lead author. Benjamin Labois from the Celiac Disease Center in the Department of Medicine at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Before we get into it, I just want to make a couple of quick points about this study, which is, uh, number one, I want to be very clear, this study specifically excludes people with celiac disease. So this is not... Uh, provide any evidence for the role of celiac disease, uh, role of, of gluten consumption and coronary heart disease among those with celiac, which is a totally different uh, question you could ask. And I also want to be very clear that this study does not look at the effects of a gluten-free diet specifically. This is a study that looks at the amount of gluten in the diet and its relationship to heart disease. So with that on the table, uh, Don, can you break it down for us? Tell us what the study was about. Sure, Matt. Um, before I start, what I wanted to do was talk about a couple of things. One is the um, populations that this um, study is based on. Um, one is the nurses' health study. The other is the health professionals' follow-up study. And I think it's worth mentioning these um, population cohorts because um, there's a tremendous amount of 
um, really important information that's come out of these two cohorts. They're, they're run out of the Harvard system, um, and they've been going for really quite a long time. The Nurses' Health Studies started, was established in 1976 to look at um, the sort of the long-term effects of birth control pills, smoking, on cancer and cardiovascular disease, and they, they enrolled 121,000 nurses. Or, massive. Yeah, massive, massive group, and they, f- they have um, followed them with biennial questionnaires. Every two years, they send them a very comprehensive questionnaire, so it's all self-reported information, and they've been following them really until the present time. And they're all nurses. And I they're mean, all nurses. the name implies. But, not, but um, important to note that not all nurses are, are, are women. That's it's true. often assumed that nurses' but, health study is a women's study. That's not necessarily. Oh, that's I not see. True uh, right, of course. Well, they, enrolled, they went ahead and, and actually included in this analysis the health professionals follow-up study, which is a prospective cohort of, of fifty-one thousand male health professionals, so that mm-hmm. they would have good balance between the two um, from all fifty-eight um, fifty states. And um, those those uh, the, those subjects were enrolled in nineteen eighty-six. Um, and as Matt mentioned, um, um, celiac disease is not included in this, in, in part because this study is based on the, observa- the previous observation that um, there's an elevated risk for coronary artery disease in patients with celiac disease, because mm-hmm. celiac disease is associated, so it's a very real and can be very debilitating disease. It's associated with um, inflammation in the gut that arises from um, exposure to gluten, and gluten is the protein in wheat, barley, and rye that contains... It contains most of the protein in the in the in the actual um, in the actual food stuff. Um, so they weren't wanted to ask the question: um, Is there an association between the amount of gluten that you take in and um, associated coronary artery disease? Um, so what they did was to um, use these two cohorts. Um, and they um, identified and, and, and followed them prospectively and looked at the, um, the exposure, which was the amount of gluten, as um, reflected in the questionnaire that they filled out on a every two-year basis. And it looks like they only used the questionnaires f- that were um, available every four years mm-hmm. because they um, looked at data from seven surveys over 26 years. Um, and they enrolled 64,000 women from the nurses' health study and 45,000 men from the health professionals' follow-up study without a history of coronary artery disease who had completed 131, a 131-item semi-quantitative food frequency questionnaire. Um, and that was the survey that was filled out on a, you know, on a, on a biannual basis and from which they obtained the data every, every, every four, four years. years. Yeah. Every four years, yeah. And the, um, so the, the exposure was consumption of gluten. Um, the outcome was coronary artery disease, either an MI, fatal MI, or a non-fatal MI. Let me just Heart also... Attack. Yeah, heart attack. Let me let me also mention that um, the the mortality follow up in the nurses' health study is ninety eight percent. So th- their ability to follow these people um, at least until death is is really quite quite remarkable. So based on the information that they collected on on diet as well as a whole host of non dietary covariates that. Um, could, could, could potentially confound the, um, the finding of coronary artery disease like race and age and diabetes and asthma use. Um, and they threw those into the um, analysis model along with dietary covariates that also may be associated with the development of coronary artery disease such as um, alcohol, trans fats, red meats, processed meats, et, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. All the usual suspects in other yeah, words. Yeah, all the usual suspects. And so over... Um, 26 years of follow-up or 2.2 million person years of observation. There were about 2,400 women who developed a heart attack. Um, 
an MI and 4,000 men. And what they did is they, as we've seen before in these nutritional studies, is they sort of, they broke it down into the lowest quintile and the highest quintile consumption for gluten, and then they compared um, the results for those. And they found that that a, a uh, those people who were in the highest quintile for gluten consumption, <clears throat> consumption had 75 fewer episodes of um, coronary artery disease per 100,000 person years um, than the comparable um, low, lowest percentile group. And that's an absolute term, 75 per 100,000? 75 cases, right. Yeah, per 100,000. Right. And after they adjusted for 15 of these non-dietary factors and the dietary factors, um, there was no statistically significant association. Okay, you're just, you're just toying <laughs> with did, me. I did, I did. I couldn't You help just it. want to upset me right. by saying that. <laughs> Let's just say there was no, 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 no meaningful association. Right, right. Um, and then they did sort of an interesting, tricky thing, which is what they did is they, uh, they, they sort of separated out the source of the gluten because gluten can come from refined grains or from whole grains. And so they controlled for the uh, amount of refined grain and controlled for the amount of whole grain. And they determined that if you, if you control for that, there, there is, there does seem to be an effect associated with the consumption of whole grains, um, c- controlling for gluten, um, an association with whole grains in the development of coronary artery disease. I, I don't think it was controlling for gluten. It was controlling for uh, uh, refined grains. I thought in other it, words, they were trying to get at where is what is the source of the gluten? Is right. it? Whole grains or right. So I thought that that I thought I thought that does, what they did is they held the, the 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 gluten amount constant, and then they looked at the effect of of the of the the whole grains versus the refined. I don't grains. think so. I think they held the the source <laughs> one of the two sources constant, allowed the other to vary, such that the right. okay. the amount of gluten is varying as the amount of the source is varying. So. Right. All right. So in any event, what that what they found was that they found that uh, there appeared to be an association with decreased coronary artery diseases um, in the group that had a higher intake of whole grains. Which is what we tend to believe should be the case. Right, right. Whole grains, generally, we assume good. that these are are good for you. Yeah, yeah. So their conclusion is the long-term gluten intake is not associated with coronary artery disease. However, avoidance of gluten may reduce consumption of beneficial whole grains, which may affect cardiovascular um, risk the promotion of gluten-free diets among people without celiac disease should not be encouraged. Yeah, we're going to come back to that because I I, I take issue with that statement specifically, mm-hmm. but we'll come back to that. Let, let me just uh, harp on a few quick things before I turn it over to Chris, which is I wanted to point out. So as you said, really large uh, or a very large sample size here, 100,000 people followed for a very long time. 26 years was the uh, I think the the average follow-up time. Total of 2.3 million 2.3 million patient years of patient follow-up. years of follow-up. Amazing. Um, I also want to point out these are small risk events mm-hmm. in this population. This is uh, less than 1% per year events. Uh, so so these are I just want to have it in people's minds that we're not talking about a high risk event. I also want to point out that this was done the the data here started in the in the 1980s. So this was done before the the uh, whole idea of thoughts about gluten. Thoughts about gluten really right. were uh, gluten is bad, and therefore you can uh, the, the data is at least not tainted by uh, people's decisions to avoid gluten or eat more gluten because of diets that are are being promoted now. Um, the other thing I did want to point out is um, 
This is a, uh, it's a very white cohort. Um, I don't know if you saw the percentages, but it's about 98% among women and 90% men, which is n- nothing, nothing wrong with that in terms of uh, uh, confounding or anything like that. In fact, it, it probably helps in terms of confounding. But it just, just says that if we think about who this is generalizable to, this is uh, largely generalizable to uh, uh, Caucasian populations. So, Chris, uh, what was your, what's your take on this study and the quality? What's your critique? Yeah. Um, so I was I was impressed by the study, um, generally persuaded by the study. Uh, I, I want to start with the point you just raised, because I think that this, this whole issue about the, the public health meme that's surrounding gluten. So to sort of walk it back, you know, gluten is without a doubt the cause of celiac disease. I mean, this is totally unambiguous. Can't, can't emphasize that enough. Totally, you know, totally separate issue. So gluten, if you have celiac disease, you, gluten is cannot be part of your diet because it is, you know, harmful and possibly fatal. Um, so we went from from that, you know, unambiguous statement to this sort of, you know, modified uh, meme, popular meme, which has evolved, particularly in the last four or five years, I would say, where there's this assumption that because gluten is bad in celiac disease, gluten is therefore bad in general mm-hmm. and has all sorts of associated health effects. And but but you're you're absolutely right that that did not that thought that sort of popular conception did not arise until around 12, 2012, 2013, and has been growing. And they specifically limited their analysis to before that. And so the, the, the healthy user, the healthy belief effect should be stripped out of this analysis. And I, and I totally agree with you. I thought that that was a huge strength yeah. here that persuaded me. I think it's also important to, 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 to state that um, true celiac disease is very rare. It's like 0.7% of the population. Yeah. Whereas uncommon. people people who whereas the people who who avoid gluten comprise now a very large population. Yeah, there was one statistic in here where they said about 30%, 30% of yeah. the US US population is now avoiding gluten. I don't know how reliable that is, um, but it but it it attests to the fact that it is certainly I mean, the probability it's probably it's ubiquitous. I certainly come across many people who walk right, down, avoid gluten. And it's it's not the same as saying that they're on gluten-free diets, but they they are right. trying to limit it gluten. Limit. And you know, let's be honest, there may be a reason to do it because gluten is almost, you know, inevitably synonymous with carbohydrates. Right. And so in a sense, we should be limiting gluten because it's a proxy for eating less carbs. But it's not the gluten per se. It's the gluten is found in wheat products and we eat probably too many wheat products. You know, last night I was taking a shower and I noticed that my shampoo- I'm fearful of where we're going. Uh, you don't have to worry. But my, my <laughs> shampoo and my conditioner were labeled as gluten-free. <laughs> And I'm like, you know, well, th- this is this is public exhibit number one. That is crazy. I saw okay, that I is saw, totally crazy. I saw a, a photo on the internet. I don't know if it was real or just photoshopped of a of a of a house being advertised, and the house listing was listed as gluten free. Oh come on, yeah. that, that had to have been photoshopped. I probably was, my, but my, I don't care. My I don't daughter care. Works made me laugh. A, my daughter works in a bakery. And um, people often come into the bakery and say, "Do you have any gluten free products?" And she says, "We sell." Um, baked goods. Some baked goods where we do not put wheat in them. But this is a bakery and there is flour everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. So if you really have celiac disease, you should not eat anything in this building because you have to assume that there's contamination everywhere. Now, um, so this is sort of interesting evolution of a meme that leads to a new hypothesis. Meme. 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 But but like the, 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 the interesting thing I thought was when I was like saying, okay, like, you know, they, they start with this premise that 
gluten in patients, you know, patients with celiac disease are more likely to have cardiovascular disease. And so I was like, okay, well, where does that premise come from? You know, and the hypothesis we see stated in the paper is that it leads to general inflammation and, you know, this, you know, pro-inflammatory, you know, pro-free oxidizing radical things going on, and that's therefore bad. That's bad. But I actually went back and pulled the original... It's not bad. Um, or looked it's at the original good. papers, and the, and the biggest one of these was a study published in JAM around 2008, 2009, and, and it, 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 like, the results from it were just perplexing. It almost felt to me like we ought to study that study as well, because it's sort of like, where did this meme come from? Part of it comes from this study where there was this bizarre relationship where they had biopsies done, in, and I think it was in Norway or Sweden, and they had um, they graded the biopsies uh, according to the degree of inflammation. So the people who had like full on, like full blown, really severe celiac disease, like grade three and four, like inflammatory lesions, were in one group, and then you had people who had like mild inflammation, and then you had a, th a third group of people who had no inflammation at all, but had positive antibodies that are associated with celiac disease. Yep. And okay. the, the, the the patients in this cohort who had the most severe celiac disease, their risk of of coronary vascular disease was about a third of that who had the low, like the mildly inflammatory disease. So there was like, there was, you know, you're sort of thinking like the degree of inflammation correlates to the degree of cardiovascular disease. That relationship was not shown at all. Uh -huh. Which uh, seems like that kind of defeats the argument that it's sort of this inflammatory state. That uh, leads to this. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I think this is uh, I think this is a good study. I think it um, kind of um, encourages me to eat more whole wheat, which I like anyway. So it's not a problem. It's good for you. Um, but it's um, it does burst the bubble that there's a big bad consequence to eating well, gluten, I, at least I, in terms maybe, of heart disease. Maybe. I, I have I have a problem with this in the same way that uh, we have problems with um, a lot of the nutritional studies because yeah. it's all recall, um, you know, and it, and it's it's recall of what your dietary habits are um, over the course of the last two years yep. essentially, and and they only picked um, uh, data from every four years. But I, what it was nice, what what was nice about it was that in the analysis they did it, they did these um, covariates as time dependent covariates. So um, they would sort of revise the 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 role that those covariates would have. Um, in the in the equation, um, every time there was new data coming in, so it wasn't that it was it was really the effect of the covariates at baseline or, you know, yep. fifteen years ago. It was really it was sort of revised as it went along. So I thought that that was sort of a strength, but still, I think the underlying problem with this dietary recall is a, pro a problem. So, so I want to raise a, a couple other issues, which is um, wh what is the, the potential here, do you think, for the uncontrolled confounding? By which I mean the uh, confounding that is left over when you control for the things that they did control for. And they controlled for a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. They controlled for a lot of stuff. However, we know that, as you just said, those things are mismeasured. We know that you can't get an accurate measure of, you know, all of these different uh, makeups in the diet over time, and therefore, your any confounding that's going to be created by these factors is only going to be partially removed when you control for them, when you put them into a statistical model. It's just, it's just the nature of of doing these kinds of studies. What I thought was interesting was, for whatever reason, and remember, we said that this was done in the era before there was the the Mean. awareness of belief that gluten, we should be avoiding gluten. But if you actually looked at it, gluten, a, a low gluten diet, low gluten, so not avoiding gluten, but low gluten diet was associated with healthy behavior. So it was associated with less alcohol, 
uh, at least this is what I took away from it. It says you have less alcohol, more uh, whole grains, uh, less processed, uh, less uh, red meat, um, can't remember, less smoking. And so if that were the case, if, if uh, less gluten is associated with uh, healthier behaviors, when you control for that, you are sorry, when you don't control for that, you would expect that if those are healthier behaviors are also protect you from having heart attacks, then you might see a protective association of low gluten diet, but which didn't. is what they saw in the raw data. Okay. They saw a protective okay. in effect. In the unadjusted, right. In the unadjusted. Yeah. They then adjust for it and the effect goes back towards no effect, mm. which suggests that if you could fully control for the confounding, in fact, it might go further back into the harmful area. Now, we don't know, right? We don't know how far it would go. We don't know how much residual confounding there is. But I just thought it was interesting that when you look at the direction that the confounding correction goes, it goes from protective back towards the null, additional adjustment for things that we know are likely non-differentially misclassified should take that even further. How much, we don't know. Whether it's meaningful, we don't know. I suspect it's not meaningful, but... Uh, the trouble is it leaves us in the same place that we where, where we find ourselves a lot of times when speculating about these large um, th- these large data sets that collect nutritional data because you, you can't design a study that's going to really address the issue that you're bringing up. So, you know, it, it is speculative. But Real, yeah, yeah. You know, we just, you know, unless you are recording the dietary intake of a large population of people prospectively over a really long period of time, and that's just not a feasible study to awesome. do. Yeah. Matt, can I ask you a question? Because we're, we're, we're in the, the, the opposite situation that we're usually in, though the, 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 the the problem is analogous, as Don's pointing out. Um, usually, we're we're looking at a, an article that is asserting an association, mm-hmm. which we believe is a is a is due to confounding or bias. So, sometimes, and, yeah. And and here you're 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 hypothesizing that there we have no association as the bottom line for the study, and, and we're hypothesizing harm. that there might be harm or benefit that's hidden. And I guess I'm I'm curious in your experience how often we you know how often do you see uh, a null effect transition into a into a you know a positive effect either harmful or negative I don't, it doesn't matter but as opposed to you know the, the converse so now i get to make a plug for quantitative bias analysis which is what i have spent a lot of time working on uh mathematical ways of trying to assess the amount of imp- the, assess the impact of unmeasured confounding or uncontrolled confounding like this you know i don't i don't know the answer to that it's entirely dependent on the strength of the confounder and its relationship to the other factors that you're looking at um i would say you know looking at this if i were to guess and it's just a guess is that if you were to keep moving that effect it would sort of stretch over into the the mildly mildly harmful area not into the particularly harmful area such that we'd be concerned i'm just saying it's 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 one of these things that i think it's worth noting that i you know the 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 logic to me says that if you continue to adjust this as you probably should, it's probably going to go in the in the harmful direction. But again, remember we're talking about small effects, a small a small uh, a low risk event. Therefore, small small effects would be you know such that you, you might not change your you certainly probably wouldn't change your behavior. So I I don't want to overstate it. I also my second issue is. I do wonder whether the 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 if there is any harm going on here, that it's in a a distinct uh, a small subset of the population that is getting overwhelmed by, as Chris says, the fact that other people are being uh, harmed by uh, avoiding whole wheat in their diet, which is where they're getting their gluten from. 
it, it could be that if uh, if there is a subset of the population for whom there is there is uh, real harm strictly from the gluten, that's getting masked by any harm that is being caused in a probably a larger set of the population by avoiding uh, whole wheat. But mm-hmm. really, yeah, don't that, know. That's a, that's a whole host of really subtle issues. I mean, yeah. how, how yeah. I, I, I guess I want to try to like bring us back to our to our our listeners here. Um, and, and try to like, do we have any, tra- uh, we the, used to the listener, the, yeah. the one from uh, Gabon, yeah. the guy from Gabon, right. Or is it, um, Seychelles, Togo's, Togo, I, <laughs> Togo, I think it's Togo. Togo. Um, so basically what we're saying, I, I think was what we're saying is that, that, um, we, 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 you know, we're looking at a, a, a clinical question that has sort of emerged almost organically as a sort of indirect stepchild of celiac disease and its association with gluten, which yes. is crystal clear and absolutely true. Um, and has just become a hyper-marketed uh, phenomenon that gluten bad, gluten bad, gluten bad, you know, whole sections of the supermarket are gluten-free, yep. shouldn't eat gluten. People think, therefore, they should not eat gluten and start, or obviously starting to feel guilty about eating gluten. I don't because feel guilty. <clears throat> neither do I, because I love croissants. Um, and um, I wish I could eat more of them. Who no one's stopping you? Yeah, um, but the the if we step away from the sort of the popular interest in this this issue, you know, and we start with like you know what is the a priori probability that that silly, that gluten per se, as opposed to carbohydrates which are mm-hmm. packaged with gluten in the wheat, are a problem? The biological plausibility of that to start with is very, 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 very low. And so now we have a study that shows, indeed, there is no evidence based on this large population survey that there is a risk. Unlikely, and therefore, yeah. our low likelihood of probability of, of, of this theory being true is now further diminished by this massive study that says there ain't nothing there. It's complicated. Does anyone want the second to last word before I uh, get to give my last thoughts? No, go ahead. Eat your Wheaties, Matt. Eat my Wheaties. Okay, I'd like to point out a few things about this article, uh, as I always do. First of all, I'd like to point out that uh, they did exclude anyone in this study who had angina. Angina. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So... (laughs) Things that, uh, things that interest me. So this is one of my pet peeves in articles in general. They tell us that we use SAS version 9.4 for all analyses. Yeah, who cares? I don't, I, we should do a whole podcast segment on this because I've never understood, unless there's something unique about the particular program, subset but I do, of SAS. But I, but Did I the chi-square change between versions 9.3 well, and 9.4? No, but 9. I do 4? think it's important that they tell us where the manufacturer's based. Oh, or yeah. Cary, North, North Carolina. Carolina. North Carolina. Well, I've never said they don't. When I was I, North Carolina, every I was so time excited. I see it, every time I see it, I, I assume the next line is going to be, "And we wrote the first draft in Microsoft Word." Right. <laughs> and I right. never, I've exactly. never, I've never. Apparently, understood. it's one of the best why places in the country SPSS to work. Why does SPSS get bent out of shape about this? SPSS version X. I mean, I no one know. ever says that. I don't know. Like, what's wrong with know. SPSS? Okay. Second, this statement. Uh, they say no patients were involved in setting the research question or the outcome measures, nor were they involved in developing plans for recruitment design or implementation of the study, and it goes on. I'd never really seen anything quite like that, and I suspected that was... Nor they have were, I. They were asked to put that in. I just wondered what that was all about. Anyway, yeah. that's not particularly Particularly important. as these stories are decades... These, these studies are decades yeah. old. Yeah. It would be highly unlikely that okay. they would have been. And then the last one, the last one I want to get to, which is the point you raised in the beginning, Don, which is that they make the statement, and it's actually in the abstract. It's not just in the paper. In the abstract... Promotion of gluten-free diets among people without celiac disease should not be encouraged. And I, you know, based on the results of one study, I'm, I, as you know, I'm not a fan of putting policy statements about our work into our manuscripts to begin with. But, 
But based on the results of a, of a single study to go that far and say, therefore, we know this is, this is, this is bad, uh, it just strikes me as going beyond exactly where the science can go at this point and certainly does not belong in the abstract. So that's just my... Mm-hmm. my they're, they're overselling a tiny little fragment of the analysis. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. they, they could have qualified it by saying with respect to cardiac disease. Or, or, or just said nothing. I yeah. mean, it just let's... Let's wait till there's a, you know, other studies can confirm this, given particularly given the limitations. All right. So can we move on? Yeah. Sure. Can we uh, act like grownups? No. All right. So in our, our second segment, we want to talk about what the role of prior beliefs and prior evidence should be when we judge an article. So uh, when it comes to statistical inference in epidemiology, there are generally two schools of thought. There are the frequentists and there are the Bayesians. So the frequentists are the people uh, who, frequentists are, are the general statistics that we normally think of um, in, in the medical literature. But there is another school of thought that are, are Bayesians, uh, and Bayesians take a different approach. Frequentists would generally say, essentially, that I'm going to run a statistical test, and based on that, I can draw conclusions about the uh, effects that I'm observing in my study. Um, whereas a Bayesian would say, no, I can't draw effects solely based on the results of my study. I also have to think about what did I believe before I, I ever did the study, and what does the all the evidence tell me? So in other words, uh, the if there were a 1,000 studies that looked at the relationship between driving 100 miles per hour and developing cancer, and every single one of them found no effect, and then you did the 1,001st study, and it did find an effect, well, a frequentist approach would say it's statistically significant, therefore, somehow, maybe it's meaningful. Whereas a Bayesian approach would say, let's look at the 1,000 other studies which found no relationship. It would take a lot more evidence than just one statistically significant result for me to take notice. So that gets me to thinking about uh, how we go about critiquing and how we think about our role here on this panel, but our role in general as we look at the body of evidence for or against a particular exposure outcome relationship. Is it our mandate, should we, be uh, checking our prior beliefs at the door when we critique an article? Or is it fair game to say, I go into this article completely completely skeptical and therefore it's gonna it would take a lot to convince me otherwise um and i should say i i had a prior belief when i read the the gluten study i my prior belief was there is no effect um now i actually am convinced there actually may be a a, a tiny effect um but going into it my prior was there was no effect and so it was going to take probably more to change my opinion and the question is is that is that fair or mm-hmm. You know, is it my job to remain completely objective when I'm critiquing a study as just a consumer or or as a reviewer of our journal article or, um, you know, when I'm trying to synthesize the evidence? What do you guys what do you guys think? Let me just clarify one thing. You, 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 you think now after having read this article that there's a tiny effect. No, but no, 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 not no, no, no. Of gluten. Sorry. I'm open to the idea that there could be. No, even of gluten. I, I am open to the idea that there could be some tiny effect. I'm not saying there is. Despite, saying, despite the findings in this particular yeah, paper. Yeah, because of my concerns about potential residual confounding. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying there is. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I'm open to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's, I doubt it's a big effect. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, years ago, I think I, I got a, sl- a PowerPoint slide for you, which I, 
I, I have used in many lectures. Mm-hmm. I think I think you deri- you created it. It was a um, it was a line graph looking at changes in two events over time. Mm-hmm. So it was one of like your wacky correlation things, yeah. like sort of pointing out that correlation does not equal causation. Yeah. And the the title of the graph was like annual average surface sea temperature and the number of pirates. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was me. Right, that was you. I, that it, was me. It, like it felt like a Matt Fox yep. slide. Yep. And I yep. and I, I have loved that slide and yes. I've used it ever since. Pirates do control sea temperature. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could say, you know, the pirate's number is going up as the sea temperature is going down or, yes. or the other way. It doesn't matter because the plausibility of pirates having anything to do with sea temperature is just ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. So that we can, we can dispense with that. And that is a perfect example of your a priori assumption, your, your, your prior saying there is no plausible way that the number of pirates can increase the number of the, the sea temperature or vice versa. Decrease. And so, right. So even if you see data that seems to imply this inverse correlation, you're going to go, whatever, like that's just nuts. And, and, and so what I did subsequently in, in, in my lecture was to take exactly the same figure that you used and change the, the titles of the axes to, to pertussis rates and DPT vaccination rates. DPT meaning the vaccination for against dip that tetanus and pertussis. And you so to have his so, dip tet. Di, right. So exactly. So now you can you could say that the increase in in pertussis vaccinations and the decrease in pertussis disease are very likely to be true. But, right. But the data, the slide is identical. Right. Okay. And so the point I'm trying to make to the students, which I guess I'm trying to get across here, is that the only thing that distinguishes those two pieces is not the data; it's the prior. It's what we believe. It's what we believe. Before and, we and so here. when we do a, a, a journal article, I think we 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 go through a series of steps. We we have to come. We have to begin with a prior. We have to like have a general assumption, like you said. I don't think that there's a relationship between gluten and heart disease in people who don't have celiac disease. And then you see the data, and the data in this case show that there's no association. So you'd be entitled to say. I'm more convinced that there's no relationship mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. I was, mm-hmm. um, and so I think. You know, it's not that we are modifying our opinion of the data. All we're doing is starting from a different place and that the data stand constant. It's moving you along some spectrum of probability mm-hmm. of truth. And and the important thing is where you began on that. Now, the, the where this gets really wacky is that it's very hard to know really where you begin. And that's where the whole argument about Bayesian reasoning becomes. Like, how do you define that prior? What is the the... the you know, what is the belief, particularly when we're talking about something a little bit new, like gluten and cardiovascular disease? It's, a, it's, it's complicated. I, uh, fair enough. I mean, I, I, my general approach would be to say, if it's something new, we want to remain pretty skeptical about it. And because, you know, if, if certainly there probably are, if it's brand new uh, and we're not observing, you know, uh, associations that we would just pick up by surveillance, then the effects are probably not massive. And so I would sort of remain a little bit skeptical until I had reason to believe otherwise. But anyway. Right. It's, it's sort of like what we said at, at, during an earlier podcast, which is that- You listen you, to us? <laughs> no, I just have a good memory. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's that, it's that what, what we want to do is we want to put the findings of a particular paper really in the context of everything else that has mm-hmm. happened exactly in that, in that sort of topic area. And so one positive finding does not- you know, truth make. So that, in, in essence, is a different way of looking at this kind of a priori mm-hmm. 
almost, it's not bias, but it's really a preconception that you have. And, and I think uh, one way that I think about um, how, how this, this really operates is it's essentially what a physician does at the bedside. So when a physician comes in and, and, and evaluates um, all, the, the, all of the, the data that is collected, the vital signs and the physical examination and the history, it may lead to one of a series of conclusions. And what the physician does is puts their priors, their, their prior experience with the constellation of data that you're collecting about this patient into the context of their experience and coming up with a conclusion about what's the most likely outcome. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 you know, I think it's, it's kind of similar in that way. Yeah. I mean, so the example I always hear is that if somebody comes in with a, with a headache, you don't assume brain tumors, you don't assume meningitis because right. it could be, right. but the prior probability suggests the more likely event is and a there's headache, a, a, yeah, and stress. There's, and there's a very, there's, there's, there's a very Science. sort of well, well-worn expression in, in medicine, which is when you hear hoofbeats, think about horses, don't think about zebras. Because right. the likelihood is that the hoofbeats that you hear are due to a horse because horses are much more common and makes more sense yep. rather than zebras. Yep. So if you come upon a finding, if you're confronted with a finding like a like a headache, you're not going to think of the rare occurrence like meningitis or yep. brain tumor. Yep. You're going to think of well, it's a headache. Yeah, right. People okay, dime a dozen. So that's all. So that's all well and good, and I think we all are in agreement there that that is that is how we should be thinking about integrating new information. But now go back to my specific question, which is. Is it okay then to to go into a, a a critique of a paper that way? Because my worry is if we if we go into a paper with an idea that I already don't believe it, or I definitely do believe it, that I'm either going to find things to 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 rip it apart, or I'm going to you know find things to bolster its its credibility. How do we? Yes. I think I think we have to go into it with skepticism. I okay, think we have to go. This is bizarre because I just want to let the listener know we had this conversation yesterday to get ready <laughs> and you and I both took the opposite opinions. This is bizarre. And now we, we slept on it. Apparently yeah. both of you convinced each other. Okay. <laughs> we did. Convince me back. Get me back to where I was. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm rock steady here. We got it. Yeah. Chris is Switzerland here. No, I think I, you know, I think it's important that you go into into this with um, a, f- a healthy degree of skepticism, but you can't check your preconceptions at the door because yeah. it, a, I think it's you know it's just almost not possible to do. But I think that that you, you have to you have to object you have to evaluate the evidence that's presented in the paper as objectively as you possibly can, and then when you get to the point of the bottom line, like when you ask. Chris, or you ask me, all right, bottom what line, think? what do you think? Yeah. yeah, You have to put that into the context of both your yeah. experience with the science or your experience with the particular discipline. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, there, there's there's a there's a tricky nuance here, right? Which is, I think, is what you're you're getting at is that suddenly some journal of physics. Uh, publishes a study showing that that this guy dropped an apple, let go of an apple, and it flew into the sky. Okay, so gravity <laughs> is wrong, and it's been a coincidence up until this point. Yeah, right. Okay, so you know, it's David Copperfield, right? We, we, <laughs> right, we can't, we, you know, or or like the, the the talking horse who does math tricks. You know, I mean, you're it, not going to tell me that's wrong. It is wrong. The horse, <laughs> the, the horse doesn't actually. The do horse math. can't talk. They, they can't, no, the, the horse, the horse can talk, but it can't do math. What about Mr. Ed? They can count, but they Mr. Can't, Ed could do they both. They can't do calculus. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Anyway, the, the point is, is like when you go in, when you when you see, you know, a, a, a study saying something that is totally 
preposterous. I mean, it, it is very, very, very difficult to be completely objective. Instead, what you go into that study doing is like, okay, this has got to be wrong. Where is the mistake? And so that, I think that's where you're, you're getting it is that it's hard to be completely objective because you are immediately suspicious that something's wrong. Something's fishy here. Where's the lesion? Find the lesion. Okay, but so then fair enough. And if that's the case, then uh, what do we do in the cases where we consistently got it wrong? Uh, you know, the example we always give, and I always put the caveats on it, is the the hormone replacement therapy and, and heart attacks, which we got wrong in the observational studies for so long, or maybe we didn't get it wrong, but let's just assume for the moment that we did. Uh, you know, you would say you got a study that says actually it's harmful. You would say, well, that's that's just not plausible. And then I'm going to go in and, and find reasons to dismiss that study, whereas that actually is a study that was right. So I'm not sure it's, it's we're si- always right when si- it comes to plausibility. Science is dynamic, and we have to accept the fact that science is dynamic, and, and new things are discovered, and, and, and new, th- you know, new paradigms are, 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 are you know, um, elucidated by, mm-hmm. by, by new evidence. And, and, and I think we both have to be very skeptical and logical, but we also have to be humble to understand that our prior conceptions may be wrong. Yeah, this is this is what Thomas Kuhn is talking about in the structure of scientific revolution. So this is very phenomenon that there is a there is a a pre- prevalent belief in the scientific community that this causes this. So this is the way this is the model of how something works, and everything up to that point is sort of lined up with that belief, and then something new comes along and challenges it, and the and the the response by the scientific Resist. community is to be very stubborn and, and to deny and to look for ways to maintain the model because the, the, the prior model had done so well at explaining everything we'd seen. And yet, and, and, and in many cases, the new data turns out to be false. And so the prior model was right, but sometimes it's not false. Um, and there's a paradigm shift. That's this is where it where it pivots. And and I, it would be lovely to think that this happens in a sort of a rational, clean, you know, systematic systematic way. In fact, I think it happens in, in a much more chaotic way. And that this sort of movement towards truth is much much like the stock market is bouncing up and down, bouncing up and down. And sometimes there's corrections, and sometimes there's a boom, and and um, and things change. It, it, it kind of depends on 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 the you know on on the the preponderance of evidence, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think there are very few people that believe that the theory of relativity is about to be upset. That you know that every time we get to the point where we can measure something like like uh, gravity waves, it confirms something that is a very solid. I think it's accepted in the scientific community as truth. Now, and there's a gradation between that and stuff that uh, you know that 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 isn't quite so sound yeah. and, and and does change. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer, but I will say this. I, I think we have an obligation to try at least to separate out the steps. And I, I swear this is the statement you made yesterday when we had this conversation, and I actually now believe it, that we have to kind of separate out these two steps, that the, 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 the art of critiquing no, a that paper— that was Chris. That was Chris said that. No, that was you. The critiquing of a paper— the bus. We should try to remain as objective as we can when yeah. we're actually critiquing it. Then— that's different from saying what's the conclusion that I'm going to draw from this particular study where I might say, okay, the study is is pretty good, but still within the body of evidence, it just doesn't hold up to what I think. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't move the needle or move, move me enough. More research right. is needed. More, re- more research is needed. All right. Well, I will – I want to wrap this up. It does not answer the question of, of what the right approach is nor whether Bayesians or frequentists are the right approach. But I did want to end with this because I saw this on Twitter. Uh, apparently, 
Uh, there is a Twitter account for p-value, and there is a Twitter account for Bayes factor. So p-values being the frequentists and Bayes factor being the Bayesians. And apparently p-value has more followers than Bayes factor. Oh God, so get a life. I, I clearly p-value. Apparently the frequentists are more popular. Can I can I make a, the 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 point that the two are not mutually exclusive? Which ones? P-value. Bayesians and frequencies. It's it's not at all exclusive. That you you can you know if if we're seeing this the review of a uh, the interpretation of a study as a as a you know you start with a prior then you look at the data and then you have a posterior, the application of frequencies as statistics within that study, um, does not negate the fact that the the whole process of changing your opinion is in fact Bayesian. Uh, we're not, not I mean, sure there's, there's a separate, there's a distinction here between Bayesian statistics and sort of the, the application of Bayes theorem in a more general sense. And I think when you start with, uh, I think that this hypothesis is likely to be true be based on all these studies, then you see one more study analyzed with p-values and hypothesis testing according to the standard frequentist approaches, and then you change your, your posterior, that is Bayes theorem in a nutshell, even though you didn't actually use in that study any Bayesian statistics uh, at all. Fair enough. At least I buy at least the logic. All right. Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve this one, but uh, let's move on to our third segment. So that's our amazing and amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. A look at the weird, wacky things that happen in our field, and in Chris's case, often the things that inspire us. So, Chris, what do you got for us this this episode? Yeah. So on this one, I went back in time, and I oh boy. um I was trolling around and I, I stumbled across this reference to uh, early an early um, elegant paper published uh, in, it might have been the British Medical Journal, but I'll, I'll, I'll pull the, the citation afterwards, um, about uh, varicella zoster virus and shingles. Zoster, uh, uh, so chickenpox virus and right. shingles. So the, the varicella zoster virus is called that because when kids get exposed to chickenpox, they break out in this generalized rash, which we call chickenpox. And that decades later, there is a pop, you know, a portion, actually about 50% of, of individuals who reach the age of 80 will develop shingles, which is a chickenpox-like rash yeah. that occurs in like a stripe Nasty. corresponding to a single nerve root. Now, it's interesting because 50, 60 years ago, it was not known that this was true. And the history behind how we now know this to be true and the sort of the pathophysiology of, of varicella zoster is really interesting. And it, it was... Um, really pushed by this very smart self-taught epidemiologist slash clinician called R. Edgar Hope Simpson, who we probably you probably heard of Hope Simpson, who did all these studies on on early pediatric infection diseases like measles and chickenpox and mumps and things. And um, he uh, was working in his um, primary care practice, basically collecting data on approximately 3,500 of his patients over many decades who had had shingles mm-hmm. and used this data set to sort of probe the three hypotheses about where is what is shingles? Hypothesis. Hypothesize. Hypotheses. <laughs> Hypothesis. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So like to sort of, you know, summarize the evidence to that point, you know, the fact that shingles occurs in a dermatome, you know, was a clue that even back in the 19th century that something was happening along the transition, along the path of a single nerve. Mm-hmm. So later on during doing autopsy studies, they found that people with shingles had inflammation in the nerves that fed that skin. Territory and also in the basal ganglia by the spinal cord, the 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 um, the sensory nerve ganglia and the spinal cord also had inflammation, so it hung together. Much later, it was found that in those 
lesions, you often found clusters of protein that antigenically, you know, based on staining with antibodies, looked like it bound to chickenpox antibodies. And so, like, the question was, is this a chickenpox family virus or is this chickenpox? Eventually, it was shown that, in fact, these the, the viruses you find in chickenpox lesions in a kid are identical to the ones that you find in, in someone with shingles. And so this is like a, a great mystery. So the, the, the idea that chickenpox could be, the chickenpox virus could be hiding in the spinal cord and emerging along these dermatomes was what's hatched. But there were really three theories that Hope Simpson wanted to, to attack. The first was, you know, do you get shingles by being exposed to someone with shingles? Mm -hmm. And he could answer that question in his 3,500 subjects over many decades because you would expect if that was true that there would be clustering in time and space. Yep. And there wasn't. It seemed to be totally random. So the question number two is maybe you get shingles if you're an adult who's exposed to chickenpox from a child with mm -hmm. chickenpox. But if that were true, then shingles would follow the chickenpox epidemics, yeah. and it didn't. It so the third one was that this was, 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 was a latent infection caused by exposure to chickenpox when you were very young, and that the virus had then hidden itself in the nerves to sort of hide away from your immune system. And, and we now know this one is, is correct. And the beautiful thing that Hope Simpson provided in this was a hypothesis as to why this might have mm. happened. And, and his theory, which I think this is very plausible, was that this harkens back to a survival mechanism by this virus to figure out how to perpetuate itself in hunter-gatherer societies. So chickenpox is very infectious, and it lasts a very short period of time. When you have, you know, 10, oh. 10 days, 20 days. So if you're in a hunter-gatherer group of, say, 400, 500 people relatively isolated from other populations, that population size cannot sustain chickenpox transmission. Mm -hmm. it, it will go extinct. through the whole population, the population and there'll be nobody left. And there'll be no one left. And then, you know, and so in order to sustain it, you need a, an evolutionary strategy that allows you to skip generations. Very cool. And by hiding out in the nerves, the nerves, and then reemerging sort of somewhat randomly four or five decades later, yeah, this cool. is how you skip generations. You keep chickenpox going, even in very small populations. So, so, so that would imply that somebody with shingles can transmit... Uh, chickenpox and they to absolutely an uninfected can. We and we know child. that that happens all the time. My yeah. my my daughter got chickenpox after hanging out with um, her uh, grandmother-in-law. This is my my in-laws' grandmother who had shingles. Wow! And then she got she got chickenpox right afterwards. Very cool. So not the great. not that part. Yeah. So I mean, whole thing. Anyway, this this was considered to be one of the best scientific papers. It was read to the Royal Academy. Very cool. Um, uh, coming from a primary care physician who never took a course in epidemiology and just basically taught himself. Logic. It's really cool. Very cool. Don, what do you got for us? All right. Um, going from the sublime to the ridiculous. Which is, <laughs> as we tend to do. As we tend to do. Um, I managed to pull a paper from the, journal, the estimable journal, Sustainable Production and Consumption. Um, and the title of this paper is Understanding the Impact on Climate Change of a Convenience Food or the Carbon Footprint of Sandwiches. The Carbon Footprint of Sandwiches. Got carbon it. Carbon Footprint of Sandwiches. Whole wheat? Or so um, this team um, looked at 40 different sandwich types. Um, this is a, a group. Um, Naomi Espinoza Orias and Aza Pajic from um, who uh, are did the work in Britain. And apparently sandwiches are quite popular in Britain. And in fact, there is a 
British Sandwich Association. Yes, I had no idea. It must be next to the uh, directory Is of Funny Walks. To the Earl, <laughs> the Earl of Sandwich. Ministry of Funny Walks. The Earl of Sandwich. They don't mention the Earl of Sandwich. But apparently there's more than 11.5 billion sandwiches consumed each year in the UK alone. And they went through, they did a deconstruction of everything that goes into um, the making of a sandwich. Both the kind, When you make it the right way. Both the kind that you make at home and bring to work and the kind that you purchase. And they went through 40 different um, sandwich types, recipes and combinations. And they found that the highest carbon footprint for the sandwiches with pork, meat, bacon in particular, hamburger no. sausage, no, can those, we cut that? those containing can we cut cheese that? or prawns had the highest carbon footprint. Sorry, you said what? Tofu there? No, Is that what you not said? tofu. No, tofu? No. tofu? That's what not I heard. Tofu. I heard tofu. tofu bad. No, no prawns. What, what about um, um, so, tempeh? So, but apparently, these they calculated that these 11.5 billion sandwiches annually consumed in the UK generate 9.5 million tons of carbon equivalent, equivalent to the use of 8.6 million cars. That is a huge carbon wow. footprint for sandwiches. Sandwiches so, are, are so, causing global warming. Well, it, they, they looked at the agricultural production. They, they looked at the energy used in chilling them in um, refrigerators and stores, as well as the, the carbon footprint of the packaging. And they... Uh, <laughs> wow, that is depressing. Yeah. I am not going to be eating ourselves into planetary destruction. Well, they, they concluded the, the carbon footprint of the snacks could be reduced by as much as fifty percent if a combination of changes were made to the recipes, packaging, and waste disposal. And I think what they're advocating is that they're advocating for cucumber sandwiches with the crusts cut off for everybody. Well, obviously, you got to cut those crusts off. What if we only drank like orange crushed soda and ate potato chips? Would that be better for the planet? Uh, we, we could go yeah, through the calculations. Oh, it's it's got to be. I'm sure we get. We can find a study that demonstrates that. <laughs> we Absolutely. should look hard tonight. Absolutely. All right. Well, I um, I'm going back to a, a familiar topic that I like to harp on. I will say that I can, this came off the internet, so you can't. Um, I cannot say for sure that I can verify that it's a true story, although it appears to have come through an interview uh, on a reputable website. So I'm going to assume it is true, and even if it isn't, I'm going to believe it anyway. So this is the story of Professor Ollie Dobb, D-A-U-B, is that how you pronounce it? Dobb? Dobb? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, who sits, uh, uh, who at one point sat on the board of seven different medical journals. Hmm. Seven different medical journals. Uh, only, there was only one problem with Professor Dobb, which is that Professor Dobb was a dog. <laughs> So he was the dog of Mike, Mike Dobb, who was a professor of health policy at Curtin University in Perth, who was tired of getting all of these, you know, uh, emails from journals saying, be on our editorial board. So he made up a CV for his dog. No. Sent it in. I, no. Again, I'm just telling you. And what he said, he was interviewed uh, and says- Who, the dog? Well, I assume so. No, the, the professor was. He said, what makes it even more bizarre is that one of these journals has actually asked Ollie to review an article <laughs> entitled, and I won't give the title, some poor soul has actually written an article on this theme in good faith, and the journal has sent it to a dog <laughs> to review. So further proof that these uh, predatory journals- If you're on the internet, nobody knows so, your dog. So does this dog know how to count and do math? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I assume so because I know that do uh, horses can, and therefore, why can't a dog? That is a refutable argument. All right. Well, you've made it to the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a topic <laughs> Keep for us, it to yourself. <laughs> 
to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or you can tweet Chris at, at ID.Gill, or you can tweet Don at, at, at DThea1 and he won't even see it, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>